Well, um, when I was 15 and 16, I went on a, a couple mission trips um, with an organization out of Florida, and I'll, I'll let it uh, remain kind of nameless. Um, but I went to Panama in 97 and then in Argentina in 98. And, and it's difficult to communicate how much of an impact those two summers had on my faith journey and on the development of my theology, especially for the next kind of like five or ten years after uh, returning, so into my late teens and early 20s. Um, and, and so there's, there, there's a kind of a system of believing or a way of believing that this, uh, that this experience in the mission field uh, taught me uh, based on kind of the, the inclinations that this uh, mission organization had. Um, how many have been on a short-term mission trip before as a teenager? Yeah? A couple of you, okay. They're pretty powerful, aren't they, in shaping us. Uh, and so this one, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that really I was, was focused on a lot on this trip or from this organization was this idea of salvation, of conversion. And, um, and essentially, they reduced it to a very simplistic um, understanding of salvation. That if you believed the right things about God, you'd be saved. And so, for most of my teenage years and into my early 20s, I kind of just held on to that understanding of Christianity being based on a set of beliefs that we just confess with our heads, with our mouths, and say, yeah, I believe this stuff, and, and so then I'm a Christian. Um, but then as I grew older, and, <clears throat> and I was really honest with myself, I started realizing that that, that worldview didn't really hold up under, under scrutiny very well. Um, for instance, I was, uh, I was in my second year of Bible college, and uh, I started, I'd become re- reacquainted with, uh, with a friend from high school that was attending a different college, and uh, she wasn't a Christian at the time. And so we started hanging out, and I would invite her onto campus, and she'd hang out in our Christian community, get to know my kind of Christian friends, and see kind of what this Christian life is like. Um, she started coming out to worship services, and then once, and she just loved it. And um, one Sunday night, she was there, and she um, went forward and accepted Jesus. And there's tears, and there's like all the just emotion and everything, and it was this beautiful sight. And so it was pretty cool. And so from then, um, we started uh, chatting fairly regularly for the next couple weeks, months. I got her a Bible. She'd ask questions about God, what is God like, you know. And uh, in those days, I was pretty confident. I knew pretty much everything about God, so I was quick to um, give her my answers. And and so she was, like, really equipped with all the right theology. And then um, about a year later, I ran into her. We just started drifting apart or whatever life went on. Uh, And I I came back into touch with her about a year later. And... um, I got the vibe pretty quickly that she wasn't really following Jesus anymore. And so I just said, you know, point blank, so what's up with you and Jesus? And she said, yeah, you know, that really wasn't my thing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, but that's not really my thing. I don't really believe that anymore. And so I, that was like the first time in my life where I was like, wait a sec, that doesn't work. You were, like, I, I was there when you were converted. I knew it was legit. And now here you are you know, a year and a half, two years later, and you have nothing to do with God anymore. What's going on? And then I, I just, I told the other group this as well. I creeped her Facebook the other day, um, last night, and I wanted to find out, like, maybe she came back to the fold, you know? Uh, and she had it. 
and she's still kind of doing her thing, which is fine, whatever. Um, but it just, it threw kind of the system that I had in my mind about what is conversion, you know? This checklist that we, we grow up with. If you've grown up in the church, maybe you're, you can connect with this. This idea that, um, you know, if you believe this about God, you believe this about yourself, you know, I'm a sinner, check. Uh, I believe that Jesus is God, check. I believe that Jesus came to save us, check. Okay, great. You believe that stuff with this, with your head, then you're in, right? That system doesn't hold a lot of water in the real world. It's not actually able to be sustained. Real life relationships don't reflect that kind of theology or or that kind of, that truth, if you want to call it that. And so it it caused me a lot of concern. Um, and, And maybe it doesn't to you. Maybe in your hearts right now, you're thinking, well, wait a second. It's all about belief. It is all about belief, and it's what you know. Well, let me ask you this question. Let me, you know, and I did this the first question, the first group too, and they were, um, I, I, several people came up to me afterward and said, yeah, that's really challenging um, because it, it kind of like, it, it points the glaring dis, uh, problems with this um, mindset. The first question is this, have your belief as a Christian ever been changed? And if so, were you a Christian before? And are you at a point now in your Christian journeys, in your faith journeys, where you have all the right beliefs about God and there's no need for you to study or, or learn anymore? No. I, I would suspect most of us, would, or all of us, I would hope, would say, no, I'm still willing to learn. I'm still at a place where I need to learn more. Well, what does that say then about where you were at before? Can we have wrong beliefs about God that are completely wrong and still be redeemed. And, and I want to say that we can. I'm at a point in my faith journey, I, say, I suppose, that my life experience, my understanding of scripture, community, these things have taught me that, no, this is very much a possibility. That there are people all around me within this church who have very different understandings of God. There are people outside of church that have different understandings of God that I think can be in, that can be in, if that's the terminology we want to use. Um, and so that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning, and that's why I say it's a bit controversial, and this is what happens when you're up till two in the morning talking, you know, thinking about these things. Uh, these kind of questions creep into your mind, and you're like, oh, um, and then you make a fool of yourself and talk about it in front of 100 people, and then you get stoned. Um, <laughs> now, uh, I hope you won't stone me. Um, <laughs> my, my favorite author, and I don't need to say who that is, if you've ever heard me speak, he wrote that if you believe a person's theology has to be right for him or her to be qualified for Christian conversion, then you're saying that a person comes to know God in part because he has right ideas. That, that his salvation is based on some kind of intellectual assent. That if you can grasp these concepts these truths about God, then you are saved. And I respectfully disagree with that. Becoming a Christian is is more like falling in love as opposed to figuring out a math problem. It's a lot like marriage. Um, When we're married, we become one with each other. 
But, but how does that happen? You know, what words can you use to describe this oneness that's causing us to become one? You would agree that, you know, if you're married, you would agree that you and your spouse are one. But how did that happen? It wasn't this definable thing that words can be used to articulate. Or maybe there are words, and I just don't have the, the, the right vocabulary. But I can't find those words to describe this oneness that I have with my wife or this oneness that I have with God. But I know it's this. It's more than just knowing about my wife. If I were to, um, you know, if my wife and I, before we were married, if we were dating, and I said to my wife, my girlfriend, or this girl, let's just say, if I said to this girl, Rhonda, Rhonda, your hair is red. And I said, Rhonda, you are five foot three and three quarter inches. I said, Rhonda, you like to cook. If I went around and I said that stuff to Rhonda, do you think she would be swooning over me? No, right? She, she wouldn't be falling head over heels. Well, she probably would still be falling head over heels with me. But the average guy, she probably wouldn't be falling head over heels in love with. And our relationship with God is similar. We can know a whole bunch of stuff about God that could be right, great. But there has to be something else that's going on that words can't describe. There has to be something else that's going on in this experience, in this relational experience with God that's causing us to become one with him. And, um, and that's kind of what I want to talk about. That's um, where I want to go. So... Um, Again, this, this idea that there has to be this mysterious connection or this encounter between us that draws us together. And then there has to be work that's going to build that togetherness. And we call that work, we call that relationship. Relationship is this ongoing thing that we're growing and developing. Um, and so, like, again, stating a bunch of true facts about God, that's, that's great. But that doesn't actually do anything in developing uh, a, a, a relation um, that doesn't do anything in, in our conversion to God, to to, Christ, to the faith of the Christianity. Um, it starts with this mysterious kind of relational encounter. Um, and I want to share a story uh, out of the Old Testament this morning that that really seems to highlight this, at least in my mind. It's it's got it's a beautiful story, and there are so many awesome things that can be drawn out of the story. It's the story of Naaman. How many people know the story of Naaman in the Old Testament? It's maybe not the most common um, or the most popular story, but it's, it's fairly well known. And I want to look at it kind of quickly. Um, I think there's some profound truths that can come out of this, that when you look at the historical context and, and the culture in which the story was written, and the world it was written in, uh, we can grasp some important truths. And so the story is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's going to be on the screen but if you'd like to follow along, feel free. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So let me set the context a little bit for you here. This is a guy, a great commander. He's from Aram. Aram is a foreign country. Okay, it's not within Israel's boundaries. It's northeast of Israel. 
And Aram is a very different land. And so as a different land, as you would expect in a different country, you would have different cultures, different customs, different traditions. And of course, you would have a different belief system. And we'll get to that more in a bit. Um, but so we have this super successful, super confident commander, and he has this terrible affliction. He has leprosy or, or some other kind of skin disease. The Bible doesn't, isn't very clear about that. And, and nothing he tries can get rid of that disease. This is what it says in verse 2. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken a young girl captive, or a young girl from Israel. Uh, so, sorry, taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed, as the man of God had... Oh, sorry. I got lost here. Wash and be cleansed. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored as like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his descendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. Okay, let's stop there. So understand that, again, the people of this time believed in localized deities. Deities or gods that were confined to a certain geographic region. And so every country in, in, in the ancient world, uh, in the ancient Middle East, would have believed this or would have had this kind of worldview. So if you went to Aram, you would serve the god of Aram. And in this case, it would be Ramon. If you went to Damascus, you would serve the god there. If you went to um, wherever, any country in the ancient Middle East, they would have these ideas of localized gods. And so if you're traveling through a country, you would say, to a local, you would say, you know, who is the God of this land so that I may worship him? And, and that was kind of what you did. And everyone in the world at this time thought this, except for the people in Israel. In Israel, there's this idea that there's this God of Israel, and yet he was God of the whole world. And so this was a brand new idea in world history. This is something that wasn't common. Not a lot of people knew, or not a lot of people bought into this. But this is the truth. This was the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaiah. 
I always, Isaac. <laughs> Sorry. And, and so this is, this is this new reality, right? And so here we have Naaman, who's from Aram, who believes in this localized deity, this, this foreign god, Ramon. He worships at his temple. This is what he says. Now I know that there is no god in all the world except for the God of Israel. Bam. That, that was like this incredible moment of realization in, in Naaman's life. So, so then he offers Elisha these gifts. And verse 5 tells about all the gifts. And, and actually, just kind of as an FYI, that would have been about $400,000 worth of gifts that he had given. So he was desperately in need of healing that he had he'd been willing to give, you know, 400 grand worth of riches to this prophet to be healed. Um, the prophet answers in verse 16. He says, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Vermont to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Vermont, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. And so we have this conversion moment for Naaman, followed by this natural outflowing of gratitude. He's like, wow, God, I finally understood who you are. You've healed me. Let me give you all these riches, right? And that's kind of what happens when we experience God. When we become, um, when, when, we, when we discover and are transformed by the living God, there's an outpouring of gratitude in our lives that should be flowing through us. Um, and so Elisha, for those on, who are unaware, he was the prophet. He was the spokesperson of God in the day. He, he would know more about God than anyone else in the land. He spoke for God. So him and God were pretty tight, okay? And so Naaman says, look, if you're not willing to take my gifts, can you at least carry, let me carry, let my mules carry as much dirt as they possibly can? Now this is where it gets kind of weird. It's like, What? You're not going to take my gift, so instead of that, um, can I take as much dirt back to Aram as, I, as my mules can carry? We read that, and we just kind of like, oh, keep going. But well, let's stop there for a second, because that is a really strange request, right? It, it wasn't as if like, the shoreline was closing in on Aram, and they needed more land. That wasn't going on. So why on earth does he make this strange request? Well, this is where it gets back to this understanding of localized deities, that you had to worship the God of that country within that country. And so that's what's going on here. Essentially, Naaman is saying this, now I know that there's only one God in all the world, that's the God of Israel. Wow, thank you, Lord. By the way, can I take as much dirt back to Aram as I can carry? Because when I want to worship that God, I need to pour out the dirt and stand on that dirt to worship him. It's like, what? Naaman, don't you get it? You completely missed the point here, buddy. You are wrong in your theology. This God does not need to be worshipped on Israel's ground. He can be worshipped anywhere. Don't you get it? You don't have to carry all this dirt back to your land. 
You don't have to, you know, trek all this, this earth back to Aram, pour it out, and then when you're ready to worship God, you know, stand on there and worship him because then it makes sense to you. You don't, you don't have to do that, Naaman. But Elisha doesn't say that to him. And that's what's really interesting about this story. Elisha doesn't offer correction and say, let me correct your bad theology here. Let me set you straight in what you need to believe about the God of Israel. Because clearly this is a new game for you. So let's figure this out. Let me sit you down. He doesn't do any of that. All he says is, go in peace. If Naaman needs this, this earth from Israel to you know, be transported back to Aram, if that's what he needs to encounter God right now, let it go. So I, I, I think that's a beautiful lesson in our lives today and how we handle people who have different beliefs than us about God. And getting back to kind of what I was talking about at the beginning, this idea that our salvation, our conversion experience is not based on some intellectual ascent that we must conquer, that we must fully grasp before we can call ourselves followers of Jesus or before we can say that we're redeemed. Or, or that we're saved, or whatever terminology you want to use. It, it is something much deeper, something profoundly mysterious that's going on that I don't know if there are words to describe it. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to trust, I'm going to assume that you've had that mysterious encounter with God. And, and you know what I'm talking about. And that's what's going on with Naaman. He has this encounter with the living God. And he doesn't understand everything, but that's okay. He doesn't get it all right at the outset, but that's okay. But let me qualify that, because before you start lobbing stones at me, um, I do want to say that right beliefs about God are important. And I don't want to encourage you to just forget theology, forget, you know, believing the right things. Um, that is important because what we believe about God actually shapes how we live in our day-to-day -day lives. Do you know that? How we believe, what we believe about um, our, our, our God shapes how we live. So, for instance, for Naaman, when he carries all this dirt back to Aram and he pours out the dirt, his daily ritual now is changed because he believes he has to stand on this dirt every day to worship the God of Israel. That is a life change in that guy's life. And it's based on his understanding of God. And that happens with you and I as well. And so it is profoundly important to have right beliefs, to be working that out. There is a time and a place to discuss with community, to debate even, to, to wrestle with our concept of God, our theology, our belief system, that's important. Don't hear me say that that's not important. It is. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is this fundamental moment in our relationship with God. Where does it start? How does that happen? How does this conversion experience, how do, how do we define that? And Naaman shows us, Elisha shows us, you don't need to have all the answers. In fact, none of us do. We don't have to have the answers. In fact, we can have dead wrong ideas about God and still be considered his child. Still be considered a follower of him. Now, 
If you think about the logical kind of outworking of that sentiment, of that idea, it's going to make you shift in your chair because it gets pretty thorny pretty quick. I'm not going to go there this morning, but I'll, I'll leave that with you. Um, and I know this all sounds crazy, but let me tell you this. It boils down to this truth. Knowing true ideas about God, true ideas that rest up here, is not the same as knowing God and being known by God. Naaman was able to see firsthand God's power. He, he had this incredible experience that, that demonstrated that God was not just the God of Israel, but the God of all the world. But he didn't suddenly understand everything that there is to know about God. And, and that's okay. He had wrong beliefs. You do too. So do I. We all do. There are people outside the church who have wrong beliefs about God. That's okay. Maybe that'll get worked out in time. Maybe it won't. Maybe we'll die and we'll still have wrong beliefs about God. There's a good chance that that's going to happen. Um, but there are huge implications to this thinking. There are huge implications in our lives to this new understanding of conversion, if you want to call it that, or, or, or salvation. And um, I'm just starting to wrestle with those implications in my life, how I perceive the world around me, how I perceive my own relationship with God. And so the first thing is this thinking, this kind of thinking that we're looking at this morning, and I apologize for the vagueness because I'm I'm struggling to find the right words to articulate, to kind of uh, communicate what it is we're getting at. I hope you're able to track with me. But if you are, the, the implications of this, um, first of all, should cause us to look internally, to look inside into our own lives and ask the question, what is our relationship with Jesus built on? Is it primarily built on a set of beliefs that we ascribe to? That we say, because I believe this and this and this, that makes me a follower of Jesus. Is that what your faith is? Or has there been some, you know, um, mysterious encounter with the living God that has shooken you to your core and caused you to become a different person? And then that relationship is built and, and continues to build today. Is that kind of how it was, is that kind of how it is in your life? Or is it something like you're, you're just kind of assuming it's all good because you believe the right things? That's a question we need to ask internally. We need to look inside, inward and, and ask those questions. Um, uh, last week, Chris shared from the book of Matthew, and, and he looked briefly at the parable of the sheep and, and the goats. I want to look at that really quickly just because I think there's some interesting um, insights into our understanding of this whole topic based on, on this passage. And so uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever excuse me, you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I, for I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So I think for evangelicals raised in the church, raised in kind of the, the norm that, that I was raised in and a lot of us in this room were raised in, this, t- this passage is, is really tough to make kind of heads or tails of. Um. Those who thought they knew Jesus, those who thought they were in the right, who had the right theology, who had the right beliefs, who had everything kind of in line, Jesus says, I didn't know you. And those who had no idea, he's saying, come in and grab your inheritance. Like that, what? How do you, what? How do you deal with that? Right? This is because right beliefs don't do anything in saving us. We need to be doing the work of building God's kingdom, of caring for the poor, of inviting strangers in, of basically pouring our lives out into others in Jesus' name. We need to be doing that because what we believe about God will work itself out in time, and maybe we won't arrive. I'm sure all of us still have much to learn about God, but the journey in the kingdom of God begins by just doing that work here and now, in this place, in in our lives. And, And then we need to be looking outward. We need... To, to perceive those around us differently. We're, the church is quite critical. We're very good at judging. We are. I, I'm awesome at it. Um, this, is, this is a passage, or this topic is really challenging me on that. It's causing me to ask, how do I perceive others that maybe don't believe the same stuff as I do? If you're like me, you have to kind of have everything fit into nice categories, nice boxes, so that you know, your world makes sense. And that's kind of what I've tried to do. And, and, and then this, the system comes crashing down when you meet an op- you know, a situation in life, a person who doesn't fit into that mold. And I'm sure we can all think of those people in our lives. Um, but this passage in Ma- Matthew, it emphasizes this again that it, it's not that simple. And, and Elisha shows us that we can accept those who maybe don't believe all the same things we do or maybe have the wrong beliefs about these things and we can still say to them, go in peace, be with, God be with you. We can say that in confidence. And what this does to me, and I don't know, maybe it does it to you as well, but it alleviates the burden of having to know who's in, who's out, who's part of the fold, who isn't. And I can just do the work that God is calling me to do. That I, the kingdom of God has um, laid out, that I am part of that kingdom, that I'm part of ushering in that kingdom, of, of restoring peace in this world, of bringing hope, of bringing healing. I, that is what I'm called to do, and I can do that. And I can point people to Jesus and to, to God's love, because that, at the end of the day, is what is going to cause people to find and to fall in love with Jesus. Understanding God's love and how it works out in your life and in mine, seeing that light gets people into Jesus. It's what leads them into Jesus. It's what starts the spark toward a transformed life. I I chatted with someone during the break about this, and she said, you know, uh, the one thing you you, you missed in your first message, and and so I'm going to mention it here, um, 
she said, you know, great message, blah, blah, blah. The one thing you missed is that it's God's love that starts it all. It is God's love that starts it all. That profoundly mysterious encounter with God begins with a deep understanding of God's love. She told me about her conversion experience, and she said, when I first came to God, first came to Jesus, I didn't know any theology or anything like that. All I knew was that God loved me. Amen. That's all you need. So yes, there is something, some criteria. It's God's love. And and that's what starts this whole journey toward um, toward living for Jesus, toward living a Christian life. So let's pray. Father, Uh, These thoughts this morning are super hard for me to wrap my head around. I imagine they're hard for a lot of us. Um, And there are holes. There are things that we haven't worked out. God, we can concede that. But we want to know you more, and we want to know, um, I guess, the truth, Lord, of what you're like and how how your justice reigns in this world. Um, it helps us in our understanding of you. And, and so maybe this morning, this passage can help shed some light on that. Father, I pray that, like I said at the beginning, you would take whatever words are, are true and, and worth contemplating, and you would help that just stick in our hearts so that we can, um, yeah, we can just really be changed in, our, in our, our own lives. And Lord, that everything else that I've said this morning that is just from me, Father, you would Please let your spirit take that and and remove it from our minds. Um, Help us to continue to wrestle as a community with understanding your your ways, understanding um, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be converted into this faith, into this glorifying or this life giving, uh, life glorifying way of living that is, um, yeah, that is difficult to understand at times. And I pray, Lord, that you be with us as we go from this place this morning. Help us to have a great week and to, um, yeah, just lift each other up where we can. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.